Sleeping on the Station, and how Star Trek helped change NASA. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Later this week, a new crew will launch to the International Space Station from Kennedy Space Center here in Florida. When the four astronauts arrive in SpaceX's Dragon capsule about a day after launch, they'll join the seven already on board, bringing the total number of people on board the station to 11. But here's a small problem. There's only seven permanent bedrooms for astronauts. So where will some of these astronauts sleep? We'll speak with retired NASA astronaut Nicole Stott about the plan to house these bedless astronauts and the joys of sleeping in space. Then, Star Trek actor Nichelle Nichols took on an ambitious project to recruit more diverse candidates for NASA programs at the start of the space shuttle program in the 1970s. She recruited more than 8,000 African-American, Asian, and Latino women and men for NASA in the 70s and the 80s, turning NASA into one of the most diverse agencies in the U.S. federal government. The documentary Woman in Motion looks at the efforts and motivations of Nichols, who asked the next generation of space explorers, where are my people? We'll speak with director Todd Thompson about the film. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's space station. When the Crew-2 astronauts arrive at the ISS later this week, they're showing up to an already packed house. There are currently seven astronauts on board, and during a mission overlap of about a week or two, there will be 11 residents on the station. It's the largest group of astronauts on the station since the end of the space shuttle program and nears the all-time record of 13 set back in 2009. So where will they all sleep? Well, there's seven permanent bedrooms on station, and two astronauts can sleep in each of the crew dragons that will be docked, leaving two to camp out somewhere on board. For more, we're joined by retired NASA astronaut Nicole Stott. She spent over 100 days in space on both the station and shuttle, and she begins the conversation recalling just what it's like to sleep in space. Oh my gosh, sleeping in space was, it was absolutely the best sleep I've ever had in my entire life. And I know different astronauts will tell you different stories about their experience. I think everybody's different. But uh, aside from the first couple days on my first flight where, you know, you get there, you're, and, and on all flights, this happens, but your spine elongates, right? So no gravity loading you down. So your spine stretches out. And that causes like a little bit of lower back pain for the first couple of days. But then when it's gone, it's gone. So those first couple of nights are like, oh, you're trying to get comfortable. You know, it's new. The whole experience is new. But I'll tell you what, after that, I would float into my sleeping bag, which we have stuck to a wall, wall, what you would think of ceiling, any, you know, anywhere you, on the shuttle, anywhere you can. And I always slept on the ceiling because where else can you sleep on what you think of as your ceiling, right? And you float into that bag and you find your position. And I would not wake up until the alarm went off, either, you know, an emergency alarm in the middle of the night or my little, you know, my, I have my, my um, Omega, my Speedmaster alarm, which I guarantee you, I tell you, and it's like an endorsement is the best alarm you will find anywhere. And that's how I woke up and just comfortably slept without any like turning and pressure points, none of it straight through the night. Mm -hmm. You've, you've been able, you've slept on shuttle, and on station, right? How is how is it different on on both? You said there's a sleeping bag on shuttle, but on station, did you have your own pod? 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, so on shuttle, both missions I had, we just used our sleeping bags. And like, y you can put that sleeping bag anywhere you want on the front of the lockers, you know, stuck up in between a bunch of stowage stuff or, you know, up on what you would think of as the ceiling, which is what I, I just always thought that was so cool. If I can like tie my sleeping bag off to the ceiling of a space shuttle and sleep on the ceiling somewhere, why would you not do that? Right. But you're all kind of together in the, in the, in the shuttles, you know, cargo or not cargo bay, but, you know, crew module or flight deck and um, just floating around together, but tied off. On the station, each of us have an individual crew compartment, about the size of an old phone booth, if you know people remember that, and perfect size, actually, though. You know, you'd stick your sleeping bag, tie it off on a wall, and then you could reach everything. You know, every, every wall space was accessible to you and get in there, float in grab my little Sudoku puzzle off the, you know, off the wall, do, you know, do a couple, flick the lights out. And within five minutes, I was asleep, um, comfortably asleep through the night until the alarm went off. Tell me a little bit about, because you, you were telling me that you were in some transition periods and, you know, thinking to there being 11 people on the station soon, that seems like a lot. Like all the, every picture I see or video I see of, of the station, it seems like it's pretty cramped quarters. Um, does that... Is it is it that tight? Well, is it going to be uncomfortable to have eleven people there? No, and in fact, I would I would describe the the space station, the volume, the interior volume of the space station as ginormous. You know, in in comparison to like the crew compartment or mid deck of a space shuttle, or especially compared to the interior of a, a Dragon or a Soyuz capsule. And I mean, you could have on our normal days. I would say even with twelve people on board, you could have everybody could go their separate directions. And you wouldn't have to see each other if you didn't want to on the, on the space station. But um, when there are 12 people on board, you know, there's a visiting vehicle there, crews are overlapping, you know, the station crew members will sleep in their normal crew compartments, you know, these little foam booth sized compartments. Um, I think there's six there now, there'll be a seventh one shortly. Um, but those other people, they're either, you know, spread themselves out again in the space shuttle or their um, or their transport vehicle, or we would have crew members, like when I showed up on the space shuttle, we had a six person crew on Discovery. Um, and those other crew members, they wanted, I mean, there was this excitement about getting the chance to sleep on the space station. Even if they just had to tie their, you know, tie their sleeping back off in, you know, in some corner of the space station somewhere, there was this, almost like this joy of thinking about, oh, I'm going to get to sleep on this other spaceship, you know, in space. And so people would do that too. They'd spread themselves out around the space station. And how, what was the max you had? Did you say 12 was the max people that you yeah, were with? Yeah, I think 12. I'm trying to remember. So we had... Yeah, I think 12 was the most because there were six, there were six um, shuttle crew members and six station crew members that, you know, came together during a, you know, a shuttle visit on, mm -hmm. on board. Some of the things that NASA thinks about when there are these, um, you know, larger crews up there is like exercise time and then like bathroom facilities <laughs> and yeah. what, what issues there are going to come up with that. And he said, you know, there's very limited amount of exercise equipment. So you have to schedule your time there. Um, and the bathrooms were an issue, but now there's there's three up there now. Can you tell me a little bit about like the resource utilization when you have so yeah. many people up there? Do you all eat at the same time? Do you exercise at the same time? Do you have to have your bathroom breaks scheduled? How does it work? 
Well, eating, we, when I was there with both times I went to station, we just always tried to eat together. Um, that just was uh, the routine of the crews that, that I was with. Um, I don't think that's required in any way, but we always tried to do that. It was, we really enjoyed it as well. Um, bathroom breaks and, uh, exercise, exercise for sure is scheduled throughout the day across all the different crew members. So, because they have to balance that out, not just with how many crew members need to, to use the equipment, but with the other activities going on on board the space station, because there might be experiments that require it, you know, to be no vibration at all going on. You can't exercise or be moving the robotic arm around while these experiments are happening. So, you know, God bless the people on the ground. They are, you know, really having to choreograph all of how these things play together. And then potty breaks, you just take them as you need them. And, uh, and I think it's a blessing that there are three toilets up there now for, you know, for a crew of 11 that might be um, there for, you know, for some period of time. But even that is, you know, manageable um, in the grand scheme. The shuttle made it easy because the shuttle had a toilet of its own that was dedicated to those six, the six crew members that were visiting the station. But we're in a little different situation now with the 11 we'll have on board that are dependent on the station's facilities for that. It's only gonna be a limited time where there will be 11 folks. This is, you know, kind of a crew transfer thing. It'll it'll soon drop down to, I think, what, seven, um, mm -hmm. two weeks afterwards. But um, I'm wondering, you're thinking back to your time up there, uh, were you excited when there were 12 people there? Because, you know, there's new faces, right? You, you're You're quite isolated up there. You're seeing the same people all the time. What is it like for morale to have a lot of people up there with you. Yeah, I think it's really great when that when that happens. And you know, that you know, it seems like you're getting all these new different people up, but everybody knows each other, right? So you're excited to see, oh, you know, this person that was in my astronaut class, or I flew with this person before, or you know, I'll just really be meeting this person, getting to know them for the first time, and um, you know, to have the the mix of people on the station and as a station crew member to be able to share that world with them, you know, to share the space station with them and the views out the cupola, you know, from the space station, just being able to move like fly from one end of the station to the other. It's a very different um, experience to being in a capsule or in, you know, within the confines of, of what was the space shuttle mid deck and flight deck. I mean, it's just like, it's like you go, from from those confines to like it's like the Grand Canyon has opened up in front of you, right? And then the work becomes different too. The pace changes a little bit. The the kind of work that's being done, you know, gets mixed up a little bit. And it's just it's just nice to have have that going on um, in the mix of what you've already been doing. So finally, when when I talked to Johnson Space Center, they they told me they they'll have seven pods there. Mike Hopkins has been sleeping in in the Dragon. Uh, someone else will probably sleep in in the Crew Two Dragon, uh, but that leaves a few people to have to bunk out somewhere in the station. Yeah. As someone who's been there, what's what's your advice? Where do you recommend they stake out? Where's the best place to to put up your sleeping bag on the station? Well, you know, there's there's not a bad place actually. Uh, of course, you know, if you can find a spot near a window that they'll allow you to have open, that. Um, that would be a wonderful location, though you do want to get some sleep too. You know, I, I found that if you got your face in front of a window, you're probably, you just get sucked into this vortex of 90 minutes going by with a full lap of the planet without even 
realizing it so you could lose your sleep time. But um, near a window, the airlock um, seemed to be a nice uh, kind of cozy location down kind of in the what you would think of as the floor space of of the airlock um, was a good spot. Um, there's not a bad spot. I have to tell you, there's not a bad spot. One of the things that's that's interesting and in like distributing people across the station to sleep or for whatever is, you know, in case of an emergency, you want to know where everybody is, right? Um, because one of the first steps is accounting for all your crewmates uh, when something goes down. And so even though people can spread themselves to different places around the space station, somebody in the airlock, somebody in the gem, you know, the Japanese module by a window or whatever it is, that is known before everyone goes to bed so that you know where everybody is and can make sure you can account for them if you need to. You can't just uh, change your spot in the middle of the night. If, uh... <laughs> no, you shouldn't do that. That's not that's not a good move, you know, because I mean, you want to add a respect for your crewmates, too, who are going to want to make sure that they know where you are if, if something goes down. Um, but uh, but it's it's such a such a beautiful place. Yeah, not a not a bad place to sleep. That was retired NASA astronaut Nicole Stott. Still to come, the efforts to recruit a diverse workforce in NASA by Star Trek star Nichelle Nichols. That's next on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. Star Trek actor Nichelle Nichols took on an ambitious project to recruit more diverse candidates for NASA programs at the start of the space shuttle program. She recruited more than 8,000 African-American, Asian, and Latino women and men for NASA in the 70s and the 80s, turning NASA into one of the most diverse agencies in the U.S. government. The documentary Woman in Motion looks at the efforts and motivations of Nichols, who asked the next generation of space explorers, where are my people? We're joined by the film's director, Todd Thompson. Todd, thanks for speaking with us. Uh, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me today. In the course of, of interviewing Michelle and, and her colleagues and other folks involved in this push um, that she made, what was the draw for Michelle to take on this I mean, at the time, this Herculean task to try to change the face of NASA. Why did she want to do it? Um, well, you know, I, I think a lot of it stemmed from her experience on the show. Um, you know, at, at this point, the Star Trek original series had ended. It was wrapped up its third season and got canceled, as you know. Um, but during that time, um, you know, not only did she plan to quit the show after season one, but thanks to, you know, a, a chance run in with Dr. Martin Luther King was convinced to stay on the show and stay through the, the, the final two seasons. And I think I think through that experience and through through Dr. King's insights, to be very honest, um, I think she f realized and recognized the impact that her role had on on Americans, on, on women, on, on people of color. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I think, you know, when she was in the thick of it, she didn't realize that, but it took somebody like Dr. King to let her know, you know, the actual impact that she had, that she was having on, on America, especially at that time during, during the civil rights struggle and the, and the movement. Um, so when the show ended and, you know, the fans demanded more, these sci-fi conventions started popping up, these Star Trek conventions, if you will. And uh, NASA started having a presence at, at, these, at these annual events. 
And um, so at one point, Nichelle found herself, you know, on a talking, on a speaking panel with um, Jesko von Putkammer, who was NASA's uh, representative there at the time, and was just blown away by his presentation about the current space program, where they had been, where they were planning to go. And, you know, Nichelle's just a very forward thinker, and I think she definitely quite honestly saw space as the true final frontier and but then she quickly realized you know I don't see anybody of color I don't see any women in this plan um NASA was still presenting itself very much as a as an all-boys club if you will and so that's when she raised her hand and asked the very very simple but profound question you know where are my people Mm -hmm. and I mean, the space shuttle program is considered to be this transformative moment in space history that it did open up avenues to not just, you know, pilots to go to space, but scientists and medical professionals. Um, But it very much relied on the work of Nichelle to make that happen, right? I mean, kind of give me the gravity of how impactful her work was in transforming the space shuttle program and, and, and the space program in general. Well, I mean, NASA was coming off of the Apollo program and in that program, their requirements were astronauts that were test pilots. So, uh, you know, primarily white males coming out of the air force that qualified as astronauts. And so that's what they needed for the Apollo program. When they wrapped that up and started developing the space shuttle program, they knew immediately they needed a different class of astronaut. They needed biologists, they needed scientists, physicists, educators, um, philosophers in a lot of ways. And, and it was just a different class of astronaut. And they quickly realized they're extremely short staffed as far as, you know, the, the, the standard NASA classes, you know, around 35, 40 astronauts per class. And they, they had a fraction of that. And, and, and more importantly, they had very few applicants coming in and definitely a, a minor, 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 minor submission of, of, of people of minority color, you know, men and women of, of African-American and Asian and Latino descent. And so, again, when when that perfect storm happened at the sci fi conventions where Nichelle where NASA and Star Trek met and Nichelle got involved, um, they quickly saw an opportunity for her to help campaign and get people excited about space again. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, she, she was so passionate about it herself. They kind of turned the tide on her and said, well, well, how about, how about you? How about you be the one to, to get everyone interested and on board with this thing? And the biggest problem she faced is that I don't think people really believed her. They didn't believe that NASA really wanted them because when you look back at the history of NASA, and, and what the recruitment process looked like and what those final astronaut classes looked like for the Apollo program, you know, was primarily all white males. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, over, over years and years and years of that, you know, you become accustomed to believing what you see very much, you know, in the same regards, which is why Dr. King, you know, enforced and emphasized to her, you know, don't quit the show, stay on the show, because what people were seeing on TV every week was a very diverse Star Trek crew on the bridge. Um, you know, the captain, Anglo-Saxon, you had, you had your Russian um, character with Chekhov, you had your, your Asian-American with, um, with George Takei's character, Sulu, and then, of course, Nichelle at the bridge, not to mention Spock, who was an alien. So all, mm-hmm. all these different cultures and, and, and characters are, are working together um, cohesively on a bridge and, and exploring space together. And so, you know, people get accustomed to seeing that. And, and so 
that's why NASA felt so strongly that Nichelle was the right person to represent this because so many people had embraced and enjoyed and cherished the Star Trek franchise, you know, what, what, what Star Trek had created from the reality Star Trek created for them mm-hmm. that they felt that she was a sure thing for, um, for recruiting with an astronaut. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like in hindsight, it seems like the perfect fit, right? I mean, Star Trek was pushing boundaries um, and showing yeah. that diversity on television. So if you want to get diversity in, in an agency, um, why not piggyback off of that success? Um, but was there any pushback? I mean, did, did Nichelle and, and, and this program face any pushback at NASA in the bureaucracy? I mean, did people not want this to happen? Well, you know, as far as in, in, inside NASA itself, um, when Nichelle got there, you know, she insisted on doing astronaut training and, and really engrossing herself in the, in the process so that when she went on the road and started talking to recruits, she knew exactly what she would be talking about and what she was, you know, asking people to sign up for. And when she got to NASA, I, I think she was pleasantly surprised that, you know, behind the scenes, behind closed doors, she saw quite a bit of diversity, not just with race, but with, you know, different uh, gender, you know, male and female, if you will. And um, remember, you know, the, the whole hidden figure story with Katherine Johnson, you know, took place, you know, pre-Apollo. And so, they, those people were all there working. Um, and she, she was like amazed. She said, you know, why don't, why don't your people know about this? And NASA just, you know, they recognized that they had a shortcoming as far as uh, a PR shortcoming, if you will, a shortfall as far as being commu- successfully communicating that they were indeed actually a diverse organization, just not on the for just not on the forefront though, you know, not, 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 not with what the public was seeing, you know, as far as the astronaut class behind the scenes, they were, they were really in great shape. So she helped make that transition. But as far as, you know, going on the road and campaigning, she did reach a lot of resistance. Number one, because, again, people didn't necessarily believe her. They didn't really believe NASA was looking for them because of what they had been seeing after all over all these years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then, you know, there was still, you know, especially in some of the colleges in the South, she would tell us, you know, she, she met quite a bit of resistance. And, you know, just just plain, when you look back, it's just plain ignorance. I mean, mm-hmm. people's insecurities and just people being uncomfortable with changing the norm and, and just things that are, feel ridiculous today. But, um, but they were really serious, uh, very hardcore issues back then. And she faced that. And, 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 you know, one thing about Michelle is she just has a way of keeping her cool and she is just so engaging and convincing and, 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 and embracing when you meet her you know, I, I think her personality just shined through at the end of the day. And no matter what sort of resistance she met, no matter um, what, what sort of opposition, you know, might have been out there. I think at the end of the day, you know, Nichelle Nichols as a human being prevailed and her personality shined through and and um, she was successful, very successful mm-hmm. in, in a very short period of time. I mean, the documentary focuses on her work and and you interview quite a few people Um about the impact of, of her work from Star Trek actors and, and other civil rights um, activists. Um, what's their, what's their definition of, of her success in, in this effort? What do other people think her impact is on changing the face of NASA? Well, I, I think, I think the numbers speak for themselves. I mean, she was, she was on the road for a very short period of time and, 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 and got a total of 8,000 applicants um, a good number of them, you know, being from a diverse background of, of candidates. So NASA was so impressed by her, her efforts and her results, they actually increased the, uh, the, the original astronaut class size um, quite a bit. So, um, so, so I think that's a testament to 
her success. But I, I, th I think, um, you know, to answer your question, I think people really recognize that if it wasn't for her efforts, if it wasn't for those four months she hit the road and helped change the face of space, we would be, you know, the, the, the International Space Station and our plans to go back to the moon and, and our exploration of Mars would look very different. And um, it just, I, I, th I think the biggest thing that, you know, really surprised me and blew me away about the story was the fact that you take a science fiction concept like Star Trek, a man like Gene Roddenberry, who had, you know, the creative oomph, if you will, to understand that if we take these ideals that we're striving for in the 60s in a segregated, very, uh, very um, civil rights charged 60s and set them, set, set these issues, set these topics, you know, 300 years in the future, we could get somewhere with that. And, you know, the fact that Nichelle leveraged that success and that popularity from that show and turned science fiction into science fact is just, it really just blew me away. I mean, it, it was just such a, a cool, unique story that I just knew we had to capture and tell so that the world, under, the world knew what she did. The world understands what she did. And, we, and, we, and, and they learned from that. You know, mm -hmm. looking back, they, they learned from that history so that um, we never go there again. You know, we're always looking forward. We're always embracing diversity and we're always recognizing that, you know, it takes a, an incredible mix of talent from all sorts of different backgrounds to really achieve whatever it is we set our minds to. Mm -hmm. Finally, Todd, um, looking forward, NASA's new program to return humans to the moon, the Artemis program, uses language like putting the next woman and first person of color on the moon. Um, what do you think, Nichelle, makes of, of this? Are we moving in the right direction and moving fast enough? Um, definitely, we're moving in the right direction. Uh, you know, whether it's fast enough, I mean, who's to say that? I mean, everything's on God's time. But, um, you know, I, I just hope that we get to a place where we don't have to call those things out anymore. You know, we're just, we're, we're, we're brothers and sisters exploring space, you know, developing the moon, exploring Mars and developing Mars and beyond. And we're just working side by side, hand in hand. You know, we don't have to call out that we had three African-Americans on board or two women on board. I mean, that, that's all great. But at the end of the day, if we can get to a place where that's just the norm and it just becomes something that we're extremely accustomed to and comfortable with and, and embrace as the norm, I, I think that's when we know we've really changed and, and we've you know, realized the Star Trek universe that Gene Roddenberry envisioned for us. We've been speaking with Todd Thompson. He's the director of the documentary Woman in Motion. The film begins streaming on Paramount Plus on June 3rd. Todd, thanks for speaking with us. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to this show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. Do that on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've got more space coverage online, including the latest news on NASA and SpaceX's Crew-2 mission. Visit WMFE.org slash space. You can also stay connected to the show on social media. Give our Facebook page a like. Search for Are We There Yet? Podcast. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. That's A-W-T-Y space. Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE, America's space station. Editorial guidance this week for Matthew Petty. Our intern is Kirk Churchill, and this is his last week. Thanks for all your hard work, Kirk. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>